So I um, appreciate you so much being willing to talk with me this afternoon. And I would love it for our audience. I know that um, I've seen the work that you've done in the past and the former chairman and CEO of Medtronic. And we have um, kind of these levels and uh, labels and bios, but how would you describe who you are to our listening audience? I'm someone who's passionate about leaders and leadership and trying to help develop leaders to their full potential at all stages of life, all ranks, if you will, all positions. And because I think the leaders really make the difference in organizations. They're the ones that have an impact on so many people. And we just need to have authentic leaders who really try and do the right thing, lead with a sense of purpose and lead with values. So since I left, I always tried to do that when I was at Medtronic and throughout my 33 years in business. But since I left all that back in 2002, I've been teaching at Harvard Business School. And that's what I do is work with leaders at all stages from MBAs all the way up to CEOs at very large companies. And I love doing that because I think you can have a, just a little impact. I never take credit for anything, but it's nice to see when they do well. Absolutely. The issue of leadership is a topic that is often discussed. Um, and um, I think that people are constantly seeking on how, you know, whether or not they are a leader, are they capable of it? Um, they're critical of the leader. Um, and so one of the questions um, is that, do you think leadership can be taught or do you think life teaches you leadership? I think you learn to become a leader. So I always said to people in the classroom, I can't teach you how to lead, but you can learn to become a leader. And I'm going to try to create that environment. You can learn more about yourself because I feel very strongly. Leadership comes from within you. It's who you are. You can't try to emulate someone else like leaders just do in the past. It's not about your style. Mm -hmm. It's not about your, quote, competency levels. Or it's certainly not about, uh, it's like, can't judge a book by a color. It's certainly not about your race, national origin, gender those things that we so often look at, it's really who the person is. And when you get to that level, you find we make deep connections. So we, in my opinion, we don't connect through the head, we connect through the heart. So when we try at all the sessions to work with leaders, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or in a classroom, how do you get people to really deal at that heart level? Mm -hmm. Not try to impress you being the smartest person in the room, but be the person who cares the most, has empathy. And uh, that to me is what's really important in leadership. Yeah. Um, in the book, you talk a little bit about um, how leadership has changed over the last decade. Do you, you came into Medtronic, I think, in 1989? That's right. And um, how do you think that, like in the rear view, would there be different things that you would have done or how you've entered that um, would resonate with maybe leaders that are aspiring to be in a, in a role um, such as yourself? Well, I can't join from Honeywell. And there was an awful lot of focus on style and image and impressions you made. And when you went to a meeting, who could play the most games? And uh, I didn't really fit with that culture. Honeywell was a good company, good values. You never talked about them. You kind of checked your values and passions and emotions at the door. Uh, but it wasn't a bad company. It was a good company. But it didn't really fit who I was. And I went to Medtronic. I found a home. I didn't know a soul there, but I found a place where I could be myself and I could work with a group of people, we could come together because we really cared about the mission that our founder Earl Bakken created of restoring people to full life and health. And that's where everything was focused. And then we used to measure ourselves, not by the revenues or the profits or earnings, but more by uh, how many people have we helped this year. Mm -hmm. And the more we could help, the, the better work we thought we were doing. Sure. 
How much does um, culture matter for one to achieve their optimal leadership potential? Well, I think you need to be in a culture where you feel you fit. I often advise a lot of people, young high school students thinking about going into college, I said, forget about the name of the school. Think about the place. Is this fit? Are you going to flourish in this environment? So in work, it's the same thing. Can you find a culture that allows you to bring out the best? And I think great leaders bring out the best in other people. So if you're starting out in an organization, uh, the leadership there wants you to bring out your best or they want you to fit into a mold to do a job. Here's a job description. Just do it. No, that's not what we're asking for for leaders. Mm -hmm. And so it's amazing when you go to people's hearts and you let them flourish for who they are, what they can do. I've just been stunned at people. Oh, they didn't have all the qualifications for that, how they grew into the role and how people love working with them. And uh, But in an organization of people who work for you, that's the real criteria. Do they love working for you? Do they hate working for you? You know, if you impress all the bosses and all the people who work for you, hate working for you, you're going to fail hmm. inevitably. Yeah. Do you have um, advice for people managers? Because the pressure of leadership is very real, right? It's and so very you're, real. You're trying to figure out how to manage like up, down, and around. Yeah. And um, do you have advice for uh, people managers on ways? Because it goes from being, I would imagine, a dictator to someone that is probably more in a coaching yeah. um, position, which might be different than how leaders were um, sort of trained in the past. Well, I do think it's moving from a director model to a coaching model. And so a, a great coach, if you watch coach a great sports team like Jill Ellis, who was coach of the U.S. National Women's Soccer Team, won the World Cup two times. She's great at taking these incredible talent, different personalities, and getting the best out and blending them together. And they aren't always happy, but she finds a way to get them to work together and to bring out the best. And it's okay to say to someone, you know, you have a tremendous amount of talent. You're not giving us your best game. Right. You know, you're not giving it. You're, you're not on. To, what can you do to get on it? And ask people, hey, you need to step up your game. We're moving up to a higher level in this company. I'm talking about the company's moving up to a higher level of competition. What can you do to step up? And I think that's what great leaders do is they coach people that way. It's not judging them. I hate the judging model. It used to be in the yeah. old HR model. They would sit back and judge people. Well, you know, Bill, you have these flaws, but maybe they aren't fatal flaws, but they could become you've got to, you know, and you know, I can't fix uh, all the mistakes I made. I can't fix uh, negative characteristics. I can be myself. Right. And guess what? When you're that, then those negative qualities you don't like about yourself start to dissipate. They start to go away. We all have them. And it took me a long time to own my whole self and not mm -hmm. just to try to be, you know, presented as a perfect person. Mm -hmm. So how long did that take? <laughs> uh, about 20 years <laughs> of uh, failed people trying to fix my flaws. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and because I uh, never could. Like, for instance, mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. Sure. I'm very impatient. OK. And I'm as impatient now as I was 50 years ago. But, you know, the other side, that's like a coin. And the tail says I'm impatient. The head side says I get a lot of stuff done. We get a lot done here. Or I'm very direct. And some people are put it back by that. I'm not mean, but I'm direct. And so some people don't like to be challenged. But on the other hand, we get right to the heart of the matter. We're not just talking, mm -hmm. you know, on loose stuff. We're actually talking what's the heart of the matter. We get to the root cause of the problem. So that's a strength of mine. So yes, there is that downside. So I have to be careful. Say in the classroom where it's to ask questions, I'm not so challenging that I shut people down. Yeah, I had that problem in Medtronic. I had it in the classroom at Harvard Business School. I have to back away from that and modulate that. 
but it's still challenging. <laughs> How did you, was there a moment that you arrived at a place of understanding both sides of those coins and how to effectively use them in front of audiences? Like, is do you arrive and then you're there? Well, I used to have, my wife took me to a therapist. She was telling me these things and I was kind of pushing her away. I arrived, it was interesting. I was, I was with Medtronic in the mid nineties and I was listening to a poet that I had seen out in California named David White, called The Poetry of Self-Compassion, listening to one of his poems. He didn't even write it. It was Derek Walcott, the, no, the uh, poet laureate of the United States, who wrote it called Love After Love. And he basically talks about, can you claim those parts of yourself that you rejected, that you didn't like in high school, you didn't like before, I didn't like that part of me was lacked tact or was too direct or, you know, people, uh, and it wasn't cool or whatever it was. Can I own my whole self? And it was, it just really had a huge impact on me and rethinking, hey, I can just be me and maybe people accept me for who I am. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think they might. You know, I can't try to look a certain way or be a certain way. Right. And so I think another thing that um, I really appreciated um, hearing from you and reading um, in uh, True North is how one's life story informs leadership. And so I think you're tipping into that a little bit and that you can't really be authentic in leadership space if you don't actually have a full appreciation for who you are and how you're showing up. And then if you're unwilling to have um, yourself reflected back to you, um, what um, are you open to sharing what those life stories that sure. have informed your leadership? Sure. Uh, my, I'm, I'm an only child of older parents. My mother was the epitome of unconditional love. But in those days, we had a gender bias towards men. And so I, the men are supposed to, supposed to emulate. My father said, son, don't be like me. I failed. I want you to be this. I would like you to head a major company. Well, this is a pretty heavy trip. I was like, I'm 9, 10 years old. I'm just a little boy. But uh, I had my idea I was going to become kind of leader. And I remember running for office. Uh, I've never chosen to lead anything in high school. And I finally ran for president of senior class. I lost by a margin of two to one against one only one other person. So... You see, the kids didn't appreciate what a great leader I was because I wasn't. So I went off to Georgia Tech, and I was like a glutton for punishment. I did it all over again. I ran for office six more times and lost all six. And finally, some people said to me, Bill, no one's ever going to work with you, much less be led by you, because you're moving so fast to get ahead. You don't take time for other people. It's like you're building a resume instead of relationships. And boy, that was a blow to the solar plexus. But I got it, you know, and I spent a whole year trying to try a year and a half trying to transform it, was able to lead a number of things. So that that part of the life story had a big impact. The other thing is I've always been a person that plans way out in the future for what's coming and got everything planned out. And uh, one day my father called. I was four months out of graduate school, 24 years old, and uh, told me my mother had died. And she was the love of my life. And I still feel like she's a little bird sitting on my shoulder. Uh, and so I always wanted to make her proud of me. And I realized just how precious life is. I never thought about, you know, you're going to lose someone at 61. And then 18 months later, I'd gotten engaged to be married, was all set to be married or making wedding plans. My fiance had gone home to Georgia to set the final plans for the wedding. Talked to her on a Saturday night. We're still debating these things. Sunday morning, her parents called said she died during the night of a malignant brain tumor, a glioblastoma. And I was just devastated because I could understand how someone could die. Uh, you know, your parent dies, it's very sad, but it's the natural order of life. Sure. Uh, when a 25-year-old dies who's doing great work in Appalachia in those days, uh, uh, 
I, there was no explanation. Even though I'm a person of faith, my faith had no answers. Fortunately, friends came around me and I came to the point. I realized in that moment is that life is so precious that we have to make every minute count. So, Bill, you can't live in the future. You can't live in the present. It's a relationship with a person right in front of you that matters, not all those people out there that you're going to build up to. And, gee, when I get to do this, do that, then I... No, it's that that interaction right now, right here. That's the one that really matters. Mm-hmm. And so I've tried to move in that direction, slow yeah. down a little bit, and really, really take time for those human interactions with people because that's what really matters. Mm-hmm. And for, um, in your work, and I imagine this is still the case where you have 15 meetings a day, um, what are your practices that allow you to be in relationship with people in front of you with that sort of um, schedule and demand on you? Well, I've had to learn how to become a listener. I always thought I had great ideas and I used to try to sell people on my ideas. So I've had to learn over the years how to really listen to your ideas. And can we shape that a little bit? Can we take and make it into something that might be better? Can we pull that out of you? You've got some great ideas. Let me see if we can pull that out. So that's been a transformative process for me. It's taken me a while to get there to really listen that way. It's much easier in a one-on-one setting than in a big meeting where we're trying to make a decision. I'm trying to get something done where I tend to be a little too impatient and too eager to get to a solution, get to yes. Mm-hmm. So I try to learn hard, and certainly when I'm now the last 16 years I've been teaching, that's what we do. We listen to what people say. We listen not to the words, we listen to the nuances. Mm-hmm. In the old days, I would formulate an answer before, you know, practically before you, well, before you finish your question. So I was coming back at you. Well, yes, you said that, Chandra, but what I really want to ask, and I've had to learn to kind of really, what's behind that? And even if you didn't say it correctly, yeah. Yeah, let me hear that. Let me hear the feelings, emotions behind it. And I think that's really helped me start to prove more self-awareness and, and greater empathy. Sure. You talk about your mother and you said your dad and gender bias was more of a thing there. Mm-hmm. Do you still think it's a thing? Well, we still have too much gender bias, no doubt. Yeah. Absolutely. In fact, I think uh, I think the, man- the leadership of any organization, when you're talking about the board of directors, the top leadership team, needs to reflect, be a mirror of the diversity of the people you serve. So say you're, I was on the board at Target, mm-hmm. 75% of the decisions are made by women at Target. They make decisions not just for themselves, they make decisions for their kids, the families, everything else, sometimes even for the husband. And so uh, that's just fact. Well, they need to have a lot more women in decision-making roles in, in that capacity. I once said that, it probably wasn't very good of me to say at Unilever on a big session at Harvard, uh, you know, you're talking about you, you got this tremendous products for women's hair, and it's concentrated on uh, women in Africa and women in Asia. And you got a bunch of doll, bald Dutchmen making these decisions. <laughs> How can you make good decisions? Yeah. But maybe that was low pejorative. But the idea is, I think we really need diversity leads to better decisions, brings more of the uh, uh, maybe women bring more of the nuance side, the compassion, the empathy, and it causes the men to behave differently. So I'm not saying let's have women take over everything. I just think if you have that diversity in the organization, then that really helps make better decisions and the organization's more effective. And frankly, you bring more talented people up who have potential. Yeah. So I think today we talk a lot about diversity and inclusion. A lot of organizations are very diverse, but they're not inclusive. Yeah. And then you wonder why are people leaving in their mid, mid to late 30s? Why, why do they turn over? Mm-hmm. And you say, well, they want to do a better job, they get paid more. No, that's not why people are leaving. They don't feel really included. 
you know, and if we don't create a truly inclusive organization where everyone feels fully valued, my wife used to complain, she'd go to a board meeting and she'd say something and they're going to kind of ignore it. You know, they'd go on to their thing and then some guy down at the other table was CEO of some company would speak up and he would say exactly what she said. Oh yeah, that's right, John, you got it. Mm -hmm. So we have these biases. And so I think yeah. we need to overcome that. That's not an inclusive organization that does that. Sure. So we need to take everyone's organization for what, what, not just what it is, but what's behind it. Mm -hmm. What's the feeling behind it? Yeah, and I think just going down the same sort of track and with diversity inclusion, and you know, we have since I think gotten more sophisticated at looking at who's, um, or at least it's more public awareness on who's moving into CEO spots, the lack of diversity of people sitting on corporate boards that are being pipelined into the C-suite within companies or even within nonprofits. I think we notice that there's still the same gaps. Do you think that you were as attentive to that when you were in your role at Medtronic or are there things that in reflection you wish you would have um, thought about differently? Oh, I think I've always been very attentive to it because I've always seen the potential. I've you know, growing up, I started with Litton microwave cooking products here in in uh, Minneapolis, and remember we had a uh, a uh, head of marketing, mm -hmm. and I said, "Why don't you have any women in your group, Arnie?" And he said, "Well, you know, I had one of those women to work for me at Pillsbury, and she didn't do a very good job." <laughs> one and of those I said, women. Okay, so she represents <laughs> all women. I said, "You better get some women in your group." I remember I went to Honeywell. I was in charge of all research and uh, for Honeywell. And the chief scientist who ran the Central Research Lab reported to me. And I said, well, there are no women in positions. Mm -hmm. And I said, why are no women here? Yeah, well, we have secretaries. I said, don't give me that. Why yeah. are there no women scientists? He said, well, you know, Bill, there aren't any scientists graduate from uh, with their PhDs or even master's. I said, what are you talking about? Of course there are. It's kind of an old word. Well, you better go get some. He actually did some insulting things to me. Mm -hmm. But I think, yeah, I've seen this all along. Hey, I as a leader, I want the best talent. I want the best talent to be able to perform, okay? Mm -hmm. And so you just can't have these biases. You can't have biases. Let's say uh, there was a guy, I was very proud of our CFO Medtronic because he was getting ready to hire a new head of investor relations who had reported to uh, the treasurer. And he said, what about uh, what about this person? And, uh, and the uh, treasurer said, well, no, you know, he's gay and we could never have him here. I couldn't even go back home to my hometown. He said, well, I'll tell you what, you got two choices. It's about five o'clock. Why don't we adjourn this meeting? Why don't you come back in the morning at 7.30? We'll have breakfast. You can, there's one or two things you can tell me. Either you're gonna put him on the list or you're gonna give me your resignation. So you have a choice and you got the job. I mean, <laughs> mm -hmm. and so you just gotta face these things head on. You gotta take them right when they start up. You can't be too subtle about it, I think. Yeah. And if people are offended, you know, is that my problem or your problem? You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Now, you may say, well, my religious beliefs say that that's, I said, this is not about your religious beliefs. This is what's right about people who work in this company. Sure, and so there's the the leader, the people leader and the folks that provide access in that. And then there are um, women and folks that look like me that are coming up that are, are looking to figure out how to, to navigate those spaces. What advice might you have for people on how to leverage their voice in, in spaces that maybe they don't feel included in? Well, I think that, first of all, we gotta make the culture so they do feel included. We gotta create space for them. Mm -hmm. And if we have leaders who won't do that, then you have to talk to them like uh, our, our uh, CFO talked to the treasurer, like, 
you know, this is not okay. You know, we're going to include, this can be an inclusive organization and you have to change. I had those hard discussions with people I went to Medtronic. Yeah. And uh, and that was hard. And, you know, we had to let some people go too because they couldn't come around to that. Uh, because they, I think, let me back off a little bit here. I think every leader should get 360 feedback hmm. on how they're doing. And the most valuable part of that feedback will be for people who work for you. Do they feel like they can really perform at their best? And if you listen to that and you realize that's the most valuable, not how you impress your bosses. A lot of people do that and they have terrible relationship with their subordinates yeah. and their peers. So let's look at all that and then grow from it and try to ask for coaching and ask for help from people. What am I doing that offended you? You know, how am I giving off inappropriate signals here? Yeah. For the, for the people that you are um, coming in contact that are seeking your advice on leadership, are there questions or themes that are emerging um, that you're responding to or that you're, you're seeing that are, might be different now? Well, the language is changing rapidly and I'm, I'm slow at the language. My son and daughter live in California, so she works at, she's a doctorate at uh, one of the leading uh, medical institutions in the world out there. And uh, she said, you know, you can't refer to anyone anymore as a Latina or a Latino. You have to refer to them as Latinx. Well, I'd never heard this phrase. I said, well, what about Hispanics? Well, that's offensive to people. I said, why? I never found it. So, but sometimes people feel then they start to shut down or that's a, that's a hidden bias you show well, or, you know, you're not woke. And I think, I don't think we should label people. I think we have to be careful because what we're going to do is cause people to have a reaction formation sure. and they're going to rigidify rather than actually being embraced. They're going to feel like, man, I, I'm just not going to say anything around here. We don't want that either. So it is hard sometimes to keep up with how fast the changes are coming. Yeah, that's and interesting. Not woke, right? Like yeah. we get into these conversations and when I was at Pillsbury United, we would get into them, right? And people want the organizations or the businesses they're working for to be woke and engaged in community. Yeah. And um, it feels like there is a growing level of either impatience or judgment or move to action before we adequately are kind of um, understanding where sides are coming from. Um, do you think that the the pressure, and especially the public pressure, if you misspeak, if you if you don't act correctly, I saw your article about the McDonald's leader that was pushed out, or your response to the the, the CEO leaving. Do you think that um, we are in a climate that um, will people will be too afraid to move into those roles because of how public and quick the actions can be? Well, they better get, we trained, we have new CEOs. We did not have the CEO of McDonald's, but we have a lot of very large company CEOs come to our CEO programs. One of the things is you're a public figure. So you, your behavior has to be above reproach. Let me say that when Steve Easterbrook was forced to resign from McDonald's, not because he wasn't woke, he violated the company's code of conduct. Yeah. So how can you enforce the code of conduct against lower level people if the CEO doesn't have to face it? So that is a behavior. Mm -hmm. Now. If he was saying things that were biased or inappropriate, I think you could take and coach him about that. You just can't do that. Now, you can't say it in public, sure. you know, but you, even if he's saying them in private, you can say, whoa, watch out. I always tell people, you know, your behavior has to be above reproach to the point where every everything you say is printed in the front page of your newspaper tomorrow morning. Would you be proud to have it there? And mm -hmm. if you're saying something that's inappropriate, no. 
And so you need to get that together. But I think people can be coached. Otherwise, you know, yeah, they will be afraid or they'll walk on eggshells and they won't they won't flourish either. So I don't want to I don't want to cause these to become dividing. I don't want to become the new judgmental society. Yeah. I, I think but I think it's very reasonable to say these are the ground rules. This is the way we behave here. And just like my uh, colleague said, you know, if you can't do that, then you there's there's the you can resign because this is the way it's going to be. Yeah. You know, if you're hiring all men to work in your sales force because men make better salespeople, nonsense. You need to have a diverse group of people out there. Period. And that's not about. Remember, I had a, a, a young man we had mentoring. It was a neurosurgeon, okay, and he went joined a neurosurgery group. And they say, yeah, he's from, he's from Ghana, okay. So we really like you to call on it. We'd really like you to treat our African American patients. He quit over that for mm-hmm. good reason. I mean, the bodies, the brains, just in, once you get inside, yeah. it's the same. It's yeah. not this. And, you know, I think he did the right thing. I mean, what a ridiculous thing to say. So we can't have these biases come out in how we lead and how we work. Yeah. And so that's about being part of an organization. You feel like you're, you're asked to give what you really have to give and you can flourish. Yeah, and I think part of it is that, that when the biases come out that you have a, an approach or you have a practice within the organization that addresses it. Yes. Um, yeah, and that's why you need coaches around you. That's why you need people at times, you know, I would do inappropriate things in Medtronic, not a bias, but I would just say, uh, Bill, how do you feel the meeting went today? My head of human resources said, I think it went great. We got to a decision. Everyone agreed. They all put up their hands and say they agreed. said, no, three of them are back in their office. They're really mad at you because they could, you gave off signal to the start of the meeting where you wanted to come out. You drove the meeting to that conclusion. So at the end, of course, they're not going to fight you. They just say, I'm not, it's not worth fighting. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of repair work to I'm sure glad she had the con- So you have truth tellers around you mm-hmm. who will tell you the truth and tell you, here's how you're coming off. You know, you're coming off as too aggressive or you're doing this. That's what you need because none of us is perfect. We got to get over this idea that leaders are perfect. None of them are perfect. The question is, can you admit your mistakes? Yeah. I'm sorry I offend you by what I said. I didn't mean to. I didn't realize you'd find that offensive. Please coach me. Yeah, I love that. Truth tellers around you. I read a book called uh, Great Leaders Don't Take Yes for an Answer. (laughs) Good, I like that. (laughs) And um, I think it's the same thing, is that if everyone is telling you yes, then you're definitely not hitting on the right place, or you haven't created the space for people to give you the honest feedback. Right. In fact, the most dangerous thing you do is surround yourself with a lot of sycophants that are telling you how great you are, and particularly been with you in your career for a long time, and you kind of bring them along with you, but then they become more yes people, and they're just kind of, like you said. Yeah. So can you talk to us about your daily practices? <laughs> well, I, you may be referring to, I have several practices. I, I believe <laughs> as a leader, you have to be fit in mind, body, and spirit, okay? So for a mind practice, you know, I read a lot. Uh, I write a lot. Uh, I read, I'm a voracious reader of current events. My wife says I don't read enough novels, but I read a lot of things. But I also practice mindfulness, so meditation. It actually came out of a practice I got into 40 years ago in transcendental meditation. The form doesn't matter. What's important is I take 20 minutes and I tell every person come to any of my courses, this including all the large company CEOs, you're so busy in this 24-7 world, you need to put aside all the electronics for a minimum of 20 minutes a day and just reflect. How did I come? How did I show up today? Did I find it fulfilling? Was I doing the things that I really care about? Uh, did I offend, you know? and let all that will kind of dissipate during the course of that practice of 20 minutes. And it, you can find 20 minutes. Best time for me is the time from the time the airplane starts going down the runway mm. until uh, 
uh, they actually come by and start talking to you. Uh, but that uh, is a, for a vital practice. I've done it for 40 years. I like to get out and get physical exercise every day with her. Uh, I don't always get 10,000 steps, but I try. And But I think also I have spiritual practices, which are very helpful in renewing me. I have a men's group I go to, a couple's group, and uh, it meets once a month. The men's group meets uh, every Wednesday morning, 715 to 830. It's invaluable because mm-hmm. we know each other so well that we can share really personal, very intimate things. And who do you talk to? So I think you need to have, in any kind of role, today you need a support group around you. Mm-hmm. I think that support group starts with a spouse, your spouse, your partner, your best friend, your mentor, could be a coach. But you need someone that you can say everything to. Yeah. And you can admit all your mistakes, say what happened, what you're afraid of, all your fears. But I think it's good to have uh, a mentor. It's good to have support team around you, people you can really talk honestly. Sure. And how did you manage the balance of, of work and life? Uh-huh. Hard, particularly when you're a CEO of a company. It's easier now. But when I was CEO, it's really hard because I was traveling a great deal throughout my career. And uh, balancing it then is much harder, particularly if you have children at home and your spouse who also has a job gets stuck with the kids and maybe we have one strong-willed child one easy child, but strong-willed one sometimes needed more discipline. And it was hard for my wife to do all that. And, you know, it's hard for me to come back and say, okay, it's Friday night. And I understand you're a bad boy on Tuesday. He didn't even remember Tuesday. Right. And so, uh, but I think, yeah, I worked, I coached soccer for, youth soccer for 12 years. Actually, oh the last three, four years that we had a college coach came in and, and taught him some skills. But uh, no, I, I, I would get away and I'd leave a meeting at five o'clock, say, guys, I got guys at the field coming. So I'll tell you what, why don't you take charge, Chandra, and uh, you, you know, let me know, give me a call at home night, tell me what you guys decide. Mm-hmm. But I think you just have to put some bounds on it. So yeah. a weekend should be for the family and you can get to the point where a weekend is, uh, you're there all the time. Or, you know, mm-hmm. a colleague of mine says, when you're traveling all the time, you don't want to make your home a pit stop. It's just a place to come in, change clothes, repack, and get out of there. Yeah. <laughs> I've had the opportunity to um, see you with your wife, Penny. Mm-hmm. And um, she is definitely a partner. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, I, I love watching the two of you disagree. <laughs> it's one of my, my favorite things. Um, and I think just the importance of having someone that... Um, get you and can um, challenge you even in your house is probably a wonderful thing and gift. Um, And so the two of you have embarked on um, kind of a wellness journey Mm -hmm. um, together. Would you share a little bit about how that kind of came to be? Well, I must say I met Penny a few months after my fiance died and She's been there. We just had our 50th wedding anniversary. Oh, and, congratulations. Uh, it's amazing uh, relationship we've had. And she's there when I'm uh, getting too high on myself to uh, uh, challenge me. And when I get really down or I did something really bad, she's there to support me and tell me, you know, we can talk it through. So having that person you can share all that with and not hold back is uh, invaluable. And she she had breast cancer 22 years ago. And she's done some remarkable work in trying to look at the whole person healthcare. She said, okay, the technical medicine's good here, but what about what about mind, body, and spirit? What about looking at me as a whole person, not one with the diseased breast? But mm-hmm. but it's how do you look at that whole, how do you help people flourish? I think it's the biggest problem we have in healthcare because we're not taking care of ourselves and our wellness is going downhill and uh, our sense of well-being is going downhill. Sure. And if you don't have well-being, 
you don't have a purpose in life, uh, you don't do anything to physically take care of yourself, you have a terrible diet, you eat too much, you drink too much, uh, it's not gonna end, it's not gonna go well with your health and medicine can't save you. They can try, they can keep you alive, but they can't save you. So I, she's trying to transform healthcare and I'm 100% behind her because I, I think that's exactly what needed. And frankly, no one's talking about this now, they're talking about payment mechanisms. They're really not talking about how do we get healthier? And people now are really coming to that realization that, you know, I need that sense of well-being, that sense of fulfillment. Sure. Uh, and we, and I think this is particularly true in people that are socially economic disadvantaged, that don't have the opportunities that live in a food desert. There's nowhere, you know, I, I can afford to go to a fitness club, but most people can't. And somebody who's not even safe to walk around the block, to be very honest about sure. it. And so uh, this is a real problem. They don't have machines in their house to work, you know? I mean, they, so how do we help people have that sense of well-being? You know, the church used to provide a lot of that, but now as many people, particularly young people, aren't going to church as much. Where do I find that? The community center used to, and a lot of these things don't exist anymore. We live in high-rise apartments and we don't really know our neighbors. And uh, this is, a, I think, a big issue for our society. And yeah. Penny's working on it, and I'm, I feel very passionate about it, too, as you can tell. Yeah, and the social determinants, I think, say 90% of health um, is actually not in the doctor's office, and it, it's around right. the environment. And I know um, I've been in some of the integrated health centers. There's one yeah. actually not far from our office where mm -hmm. we're sitting right now mm -hmm. at the Y. Um, and it's it's a beautiful space that um, is, is is making wellness more accessible, and I think it's actually changing from uh, wellness being about fitness yes. to being more expanded, which is um, absolutely fantastic. And we uh, we and Penny took the lead here, but we funded that center at the Y, uh, a well-being center. She wanted to call it well-being because mm -hmm. that's what she wanted it to be. And one of the reasons we like the Y is because they give scholarships to people that can't afford. So people who can't afford, they should pay. The people who can't afford should get a discount. Everybody probably put in something, but have it. And we'd like more people to have health coaches. We'd like them to have opportunities to take care of themselves. And because uh, that's the only way we're gonna solve our healthcare problems, by the way. I don't think that just government writing rules and uh, payment mechanisms not gonna solve anything because it's all about our health. And isn't that what you want without your health? You yeah. can't do anything in life. Mm -hmm. And we uh, we met through the Catalyst Initiative. Yes. And um, I remember actually being at, um, we were at the uh, the golf uh, club um, doing a retreat mm -hmm. as we were thinking through what the Catalyst Initiative might look like moving from um, the George Family Foundation to the Minneapolis Foundation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course I heard of you, but then I sat at the table with you and I'm like, who is this guy? Yeah. <laughs> I kind of like him. Um, and so can you, um, you know, do you have kind of hopes for, for us in this community around Catalyst and really addressing, I think you've touched on it a bit, but I think the next layer um, is maybe how trauma can be moved perhaps to a wellness frame? Well, that was the learning I got from this. We just started this adventure and we hired a woman named Suzanne Kepter came to work for us, now works for you at the Minneapolis Foundation to go out and experiment, to try some measures, see what works. And she came to us with one clear understanding that I didn't honestly have fully before, mm -hmm. is that people can't think about their health clearly if they've experienced so much historical trauma or even they're in real time trauma. Maybe they're afraid to go home because they get beaten up or maybe there's so much alcoholism in their family. Maybe their mother or father is you know, making their lives impossible. 
So we need to be, maybe they're out on the street, don't have any home to go to. Yeah. And so you can't think about your health until you can help people. And, but I do think uh, a lot of people are gonna seek that kind of sense of well-being outside of the medical center. Most people, when they go to the hospital, they think, I'm sick, I have a disease. And frankly, the way medicine's going, the, the doctor gets you, you get seven to 10 minutes. We can't do anything in that time. Yeah. You know, Maybe my husband passed away last week. Maybe I just went through a divorce. That may be driving your health. Why do I have these headaches all the time? Why is my stomach cramping up? Maybe it's not a medical thing at all. And so, but that takes time. And so I think we need to create these places and environment like the Catalyst Initiative, which are working with various types of groups. And I think a lot of it does get down to what's the environment in which you grew up. One of the places we've had great success was with some of the leaders of the Native American community. And they've done some wonderful things with mindfulness, just fantastic. And you would think, well, does this offend their religious traditions, their other spiritual traditions? No, because it's led by Native American people. We did something very different in the uh, Muslim community. And because their religious traditions are so different, but the Imam took this on and created programs out of it. But all aimed at the same thing. Can you imagine if you'd been a refugee in Somalia? I cannot. How you'd feel? I can't either. How would you feel? Uh, and so you have to deal with those things before you can get to a sense of well-being that can lead you to, to health. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you see what I mean? I do. And I think just the connection for me as I'm talking to you is, you know, how you can use kind of the story and the traumatic incidents that you've gone to to really right. fuel um, your leadership and, and, and the gifts that you bring into a community and that um, the resiliency and... Um, that's required and, and what you have to overcome can actually be a tool for good. Very and, good. And I think that sometimes we um, hide the things that maybe we have been through and we're afraid that if we allow that to be, um, that somehow we won't aspire. And I think from, from your book and from I understand, you're basically saying, no, you actually have to lean into those things yeah. and use them um, to fully embrace embrace yourself. And everyone has those things. I was thinking back to Irreducible Grace, this organization was featured the other day that you're funding here at the Minneapolis Foundation. Uh, this huge, incredible national show on CBS. They gave them six or seven minutes. But here's it. I went, I went and spent three hours with them at one of their programs and we did some pairing off. And I was talking to a young man who had been thrown out of his home three times. He had nowhere to live. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know all the details of it. All I know is that I had great empathy, but He's now taken that, here we are four years later, he's taken that experience and trying to help other people facing similar kinds of things, mm -hmm. whether they're homeless or they don't feel they have a safe place at home or experiencing some kind of trauma or they, you know, then they're gonna act up at school. You understand all yeah. of those things. So, but I think sometimes you see people that have, oh, they're in their 50s, they have a prominent position, they have a big title, they look, boy, they got put together. I'll tell you, when you get them in my class and they start about their crucibles, you'd be shocked. When they're you'd talking about their crucibles. Their crucibles. You'd be shocked at what their crucibles are. Mm -hmm. And they don't always tell you, but I tell you, they've all had them and some pretty horrible, you know, challenging things. Sure. So we shouldn't look at someone because they look, they appear on the outside to be well put together mm -hmm. that they haven't gone through traumatic times. And so then the question is, you look at that as something you're ashamed of and you're never going to grow once you're, if you have to overcome that. Or you just stuff it. A lot of people just say, I'm not even going to talk about that. No, by talking about it, then you can become whole and then you can help other people. And sure. you can share your story. You can find passion. Maybe you 
were near death as a teenage boy or girl, or maybe you uh, had section, you know, it's, it's frankly shocking what a high percentage of our population has suffered from some form of sexual Second. abuse. Not just women, but men too. You know, it's not as high percentage, but it's pretty, you know, these are very disturbing stories and if people carry this for a long time, like Oprah Winfrey did, it's a, a form of shame. And uh, I've been working with a young man who uh, had a similar experience and uh, you know, wow, until you can over get that out, hey, you're okay. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, uh, yeah. it wasn't your fault, you're a you're good okay. person. It certainly yeah. wasn't your fault, you yeah. know, and that those cases. But, you know, some things that happen in the home aren't your fault either. And so I think empathy. Mm -hmm. Leaders have to have empathy. They have to have a great deal of compassion. And until you have compassion on myself as that little boy that the girls didn't want to go out with in high school or got run over in ninth grade football, until I have some compassion for myself, I can't have genuine mm -hmm. compassion for others. Mm -hmm. So I got to look back on that. Yeah, I'm looking at my notes. I wrote, I wrote down post-traumatic growth. Yes. Because I've never heard that term before. Yeah. And I think that's what, what we're talking about now is, yeah. is post-traumatic growth. How do you grow from what the trauma has been? Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we have hundreds of thousands of veterans coming back, male and female, from overseas wars. They've been going on for almost 20 years. Uh, they have post-traumatic stress syndrome, you know, and they're untreated. It's not cool to, you know, to have mental problems and wake up with nightmares. But, it, you know, if you have a if you got your foot blown off, yeah, that's your hero. Well, these people are, are really injured. So how do you find trust-traumatic growth? You find it by processing your crucible and say, I could find someone that I don't want to help other people that yeah. have faced that. That's what Oprah Winfrey did because she took this horrible trauma she'd had growing up as a girl in Mississippi and in Milwaukee and the challenges she faced and said, now we can help other people. Mm -hmm. So that's why she has become so effective uh, and empathizing with people that have. And so well, that's why millions of people want to listen to that. And that's so important. She turned her passion to right. that. Bill, will you introduce me to Oprah? <laughs> if I could just call her up, I would. I did have the privilege of having dinner once for three hours, but I would love to. But you can reintroduce me to her. Right. But, I need to know Oprah. But, uh, um, so, you know, as we're as we're wrapping up, um, I'm curious that like when you when you look at um, your life accomplishments, um, you know, are, are you proud? Do you have things that are still on, on your list to accomplish that that you're striving towards? Well, I like to think that uh, at the end of the day that I can say I was true to my values. I made a lot of mistakes, maybe offended a few people along the way. I'm sorry about that. I apologize, but uh, maybe I was too outspoken. But I like to think that, uh, that I stayed true to my values, particularly mm -hmm. value of integrity. Yeah. telling the truth because you can't work with anyone unless you trust their integrity sure. and but the other thing I'd like to think is I decided when I left Metro I look back over my life I really decided this when I was like in high school and college but I love working with people and helping them flourish that's why I wanted to be in leadership roles so I decided when I left Medtronic I've done my leadership thing I'm not gonna lead anything anymore I'm just gonna help other leaders and I the thing I'm still trying to accomplish and I think we're making progress is I want to transform leadership I want leadership to be less of that so-called uh, charismatic, the great man theory of leadership, the directive power man to the people that everyone can flourish for who they are and become great leaders and not think you got to be on top. You don't need a title. You can lead anytime. You don't even need direct reports. You can step up and lead right now. You can help other people. That leadership becomes much more about enabling other people to mm -hmm. perform at their best. Yeah, and, and there's... You, go, go ahead. ahead. 
Well, I was going to say, you know, folks that if they have access, you're teaching um, classes at Harvard and your book is, I think I heard, one of the top 25 leadership yes. books that has been identified. And I would attest to it's a pretty darn good book. And then you have the Mindful Leadership um, Retreat. Mm -hmm. um, is that only in California? Or if, if someone wanted to, is, is that the right name the, of it? Yeah, we, we actually call it True North Leadership after the book. But uh, it, that's only in California at a wonderful place called... Uh, uh, multiversity because it looks at the whole person. The reason I like it in that setting is because you can talk about all these various things. You can have all kinds of practices and, and talk about the importance of the whole person. And I think that's what we all want to be. Uh, again, if we can overcome this idea, I need to have a this title or that title. I need to make so much money. I think the three great seducers in life that I've seen a lot of people fail are money, fame, and power. Mm -hmm. And when you get too caught up in your power, how much money you're gonna make. Yeah, we want enough to have a good life, don't get me wrong. But, uh, or you try to become famous, boy, you can go up and get taken down very quickly. Sure. And so I think if we can help people flourish as whole people, uh, and that's what leaders do, and they can experience it themselves, and then go out and carry it out to other people. So to me, it's like that pond, you throw a stone in the pond and you see the ripples, and that's mm -hmm. what I hope to, to be, kind of throwing a little stone in the sure. pond. And you've used your platform um, to do so much for others. And if there are people that are listening that um, have have instinct to do more, yeah, right, and they have a platform to do more, what what advice would you give them? Well, I would say to find out where your passions are. What is your talk about post traumatic growth? What is your crucible? Point you towards, and decide I want to do that, and then decide how can I make a difference, and then dive in. And go to the ground level, go to the first level. Too many leaders want to get up to the, you know, I'm making PowerPoint charts for the CEO or something. Get down on the ground. I, I learned so much from watching doctors practice medicine when I was at Medtronic. Get with the real people doing the work. I used to sit with factory workers at Medtronic and ask them how's the quality. I learned much more from them than they ever learned from me. So get out into, you know, if you're working in a nonprofit, you gotta get out and work with the people you serve and see what they're like. If you're working with homeless people, Spend a night in a homeless shelter, you know, go work in a soup kitchen just to feel what it's like. And too many people get isolated by all these management theories we have and all these consultants we have. They get isolated from the real work. Mm -hmm. So I think it's critical for leaders, regardless of what level they're at, to really get out there and understand what's going on and what the real life is and, and hear from people and learn from that experience. I think that's the best advice I can give them. And you never, don't tell us you're too busy to get out and find out what the real work is. And so you really understand the people and what their lives are like. Awesome, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me, this has been great. Yeah. You're a great interviewer, yes, great questions. Thank you so much. If our listeners are are uh, in a place and wanting to figure out um, who they are leaders and where they can go next, I suggest you check out one of Bill George's books, um, Discover Your True North is my favorite. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and I think every time I have uh, looked at it, I find something new that I can use um, and that leadership is a journey and you have to be committed to it. So I appreciate you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. It's a privilege to be here. Please check out the Minneapolis Foundation website to find more episodes of this podcast, information on upcoming events, and for my book recommendations. Thank you to Weber Shadwick for their partnership and support in making this podcast come alive.